Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, although he's Irish, we're going over to America to be joined by Connor Power, the CEO of Interpreter Intelligence. Connor, you're very welcome to the show. Hi, Rain. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for reaching out. Excited for Del- the conversation. Likewise, likewise. Delighted to have you on. Uh, fashion, typical fashion with the show uh, for regular listeners will know that we focus on three areas, as we discussed before we hit the record button, was uh, early influences, challenges, and pivotal moments with the idea of providing some value throughout um, making sure that you don't sound like a parrot. So uh, let's go right back to the beginning. If I'm correct, you grew up in Port Marnock in Dublin. Um, any favorite standout memories from your childhood growing up there? Um, well, now living, I live here in San Francisco now. I've lived here for the last 21 years. The one thing that stands out now that I have two young kids myself is that we didn't appreciate the, uh, <clears throat> the areas that we grew up in. You know, at the time, so you're young. I was a young kid growing up in Pomarnock, and really, it was an idyllic place to grow up in Ireland. And uh, but we didn't appreciate it. So for me, I think it was a brand new community. So what was uh, the memories that I have was just everybody on the street was the same age. You know, all the kids were growing up at the same time. The schools were teaming with people. The GA clubs, the soccer clubs had a lot going on. They were just getting started, so there's a lot of momentum, and it just felt like everything was new and fresh. And I think that sort of bubbled down to impact, you know, our outlook on life as kids. So again, you're going through it at the time, but you don't realize how sort of special it is until, you know, you move somewhere else, you have kids yourself, you start your own family and you realize how lucky you were to grow up in that environment. So trying to now replicate that somehow with our own kids here in San Francisco. Awesome. I'm not too sure what age your kids are, but uh, have you introduced them to GAA? I have not. So they're four and six. So they're just watching the Euros at the moment. Yeah. (laughs) They're watching the Euros at the moment. They're still not quite getting why I'm shouting at the television from time to time. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll be off this podcast in time to watch England and, yeah, and Germany yeah, play. Yeah, Germany. Um, I have them down for a draw. Interesting. Yeah, I'm not too sure. Um, I, I was shocked last night with France exiting, but I was delighted for Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. indeed, indeed. Sticking with your early days, um, is there anyone, it could be multiple people, a teacher, a parent, uh, a close relative who you believe that had a big impact on you growing up or inspired you a lot? Um, well, you know, I played a lot of sport as a kid, as a, you know, all through my teens and my early 20s, up until the point that I moved to the States, you know, played uh, GAA for the most part in soccer with some buddies. I think I was just influenced by my father, who was, a, uh, you know, he was a teacher himself. And, and there was a stage in my career where I wanted to become a teacher. I really enjoyed that, you know, um, teaching people, you know, who are interested in learning. And um, I enjoyed that feedback, that interaction. And I think, um, as I say, if I hadn't gone into software, I probably would have gone into that field. So his influence and also influence from coaches and other teammates, you know, through my young life, I think were the biggest influences. You know, I think sport for me, um, I'd recommend for any kid, any, any teenager to get involved in sport. There's just so many benefits to you, both uh, from a health perspective and also from a competitive perspective. And, and just the influences that you have, you find leaders on these teams, you find leaders in your coaches um, and also some discipline, like with train with the regular training that you do weekly. For me, I think they were the biggest factors that I look upon in terms of how, you know, a lot of the things that I learned from them, from the, from those times, I think I've brought to, you know, how I live my life these days, you know, and similarly, you know, with the young family now as well, we're trying to 
find opportunities for them to be exposed to similar influences, similar positive influences. Let's move on to your time at university. You went and studied <clears throat> applied maths at DCU, and then you went to Trinity and did a master's in computer science. Uh, did you always have an interest in all things computer or mathsy? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I had more of an aptitude for the mathematical stuff or for the sort of the logical stuff, the stuff that was either you understand it or you don't, you know, like language and liter uh, literary. I didn't have as much of an interest at the time. Um, and I think in terms of influences, I did have a mathematics teacher, applied maths teacher in our school. He was a very good teacher, very influential. His name was Mr. O'Sullivan, if I remember correctly. Um, but four of us from that applied maths class applied for the same course in Dublin City University, which was called Applied Mathematics. Applied Mathematics. Um, and it was only a class of 30 people. But again, it just, uh, I, I felt like I had the aptitude for it. It appealed to me. Um, and I did pretty well throughout that, you know. Um, and then during that course, when you get to third year, you have an opportunity to specialize in actuarial mathematics, computer science, or just pure mathematics. And I chose the computer science path. So I had a mix of both mathematics and computer science. Um, and again, my interest just grew. I, I, I would consider myself somewhat of a poor student in first year got better in second year, got better in third year, and then I did very well in fourth year. And again, I put that down to just, you know, maturing a little bit. And um, I think with the Irish educational system, the individual is left a lot to decide what they want to do at a very early age. You know, you don't get a very broad width of, of education. Um, but I think it benefited me in the end because we specialized. And fortunately, I had the aptitude, so I did pretty well. Um, when I finished university, then I was in my fourth year. I really had no clue what I wanted to do. You know, I mean, computer, computer programming was the, was the obvious opportunity, but then I saw a position for a master's advertised in both DCU and in um, Trinity College Dublin. Mm -hmm. So I actually started it in DCU in neural networks, and um, which of course is a hot topic now with artificial intelligence. But, you know, I think it was still quite a burgeoning field at the time. Anyway, I decided to go to Trinity College Dublin into the knowledge and data engineering group there and did a master's there, a research-led master. So no classes, just purely research, worked on a European project. So I got some, you know, again, it was a transition because you're out of your elements. You know, it's a whole new set of people you're inter in, interacting with. It's a, a new challenge in having to be self-disciplined to write a, you know, a, a, a thesis. Um, and then thoroughly enjoyed that. You know, I made some friends there. It was great to be in the city center rather than there in the north side. I mean, I'm from the north side, but Trinity is in the city center, you know, you're yeah. sort of in the thick of it. So I really enjoyed that. And and then as the summers came in, because our, our course went through the summer, you know, it was just it was just a good, a good all-around experience. Again, I probably took a bit longer than, you know, a more disciplined students. Took like two years, I think, maybe two and a little bit years to do my master's. Graduated with that. And then the, the research group that I was studying in, a couple of guys had started a company from that a couple of years prior who I had met. So they invited me, you know, to see if I was interested in working with them, which I did straight out of college. So I went from university, the small research group to then like a small startup called Kunav Technologies, which is an Irish word for, I think it's peace. Or, um, anyway, so again, it was a great opportunity because it's a small company and you have yeah. a whole different experience working for a small company than you do for a bigger company. You know, you get your hands on every part of the code base, you know, you're sort of interfacing with the customers from, a, you know, from the get-go. Um, so again, I think that sort of um, anchored me in terms of what I wanted to do. I wasn't gonna be a big corporation type guy. You know, I wasn't gonna go work for Accenture or you know, any other opportunities that might be like that. Um, and then I did that for a few years before uh, the opportunity came to move to the States. So, um, Do you remember your first computer? I do actually, yeah. You know, my dad was a teacher in Finglas and they got their hands on an Acorn. I 
think it was like an acorn. I don't know quite what the model was. So they had it in school and he brought it home for the summer. So we were just, myself and my brother were fighting over it then for the summer. Um, but again, like, I think my, my, my dad had, you know, they really had no, no idea quite what to do with the computer, but they knew it was something that, you know, was to be integrated or exposed to the kids if possible. So he yeah. brought it home and we just sort of, you know, got a bit, got our hands dirty with it. And then we had a Spectrum 48K. Um, I don't know if, if uh, you're probably a bit too young to remember those, but <clears throat> it was the first computer that had a lot of games available for, you know, sort of consumer computer. I think in, in the UK, they had, uh, I can't remember what the name of the computer, uh, the Amiga perhaps in the UK. Anyway, in, in Ireland, it seemed like all my friends, my peers had, had Spectrums. And then the more advanced folks had the Spectrum, I think it was 128Ks. So you had like a little tape that you would put into the tape mm. deck, make sure the volume is set at the right level and you, you fire up your game. And again, I would say we probably spent a lot of the time playing games on it, but I do have a very strong recollection of actually the game of, of sort of, I wouldn't call it hacking, but experimenting with one of these arcade games where you could actually stop the tape and I could see the source code and it was basic code. And I, I think it just, you know, it's like, um, I wouldn't say it's a pivotal moment in my life, but I remember it so clearly, you know, being sort of amazed by the fact that, you know, what, what's happening on the computer has been driven by the tape. You can stop that, you can see the source code and you can play around with it. And so, you know, and the fact that I remember it, you know, must have been a very strong emotion for me. For sure, for sure. You you touched on after Trinity, he joined a a startup. Uh, I I noticed from my research that you spent about 13 plus years working with others at companies like Wells Fargo, Sky, Cambridge Technology Partners. Um, How did those 13 years help you as we progress this conversation uh, when you decided to launch interpreter intelligence any lessons that you could carry over or any experiences that were that that helped you leapfrog or learn from mistakes that you potentially could have made yeah yeah and what i don't think i was particularly career oriented you know i didn't have like this path that i was on that i wanted you know i wasn't driving through a certain endpoint Mm. so i i sort of you know was fortunate to meet the right people you know that had a good influence on my career you know smaller companies for me was a was was the correct path but what I will say is, I, I think you have this uh, this crossroads when you in, in computer science. Either you sort of go more customer facing, or else you go more programming, sort of deeper programming, which is sort of behind the scenes. And I ended up doing more customer facing, sort of consulting type work. So a lot of a lot of sort of consultant consulting type projects. Um, but really, I think now looking back, my passion was more so on the development side. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. customers are obviously critical in all of this picture, but the consultancy type work is less computer science and more consulting requirements, you know, meeting those requirements, building a product that meets those specs. So it's not as detailed, it's not as technical as the pure com- the, the pure computer programming. So one of those um, companies that you mentioned, those 13 years, I ended up doing mostly consulting type work in that span of time. And I think it was, it was important in terms of where I'm at now because I knew that I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to continue interacting with the customer at that level as an employee. First off, I wanted to be my own boss. So if I was doing that, I wanted to sort of control my own decision-making process, but I also wanted to take control, sort of uh, creative control over what it was we were building. So understand what the customer needs, but take mm-hmm. that away, build a product, and then bring it back to the customer and sort of reap all the benefits of that rather than working for other people. So I think the, those 13 years was really the driving force. And uh, at the end of that saying, okay, I'm going to do my own thing. The time has come. I'd reach a point where, you know, there was just a, I had got a bit burnt out with the last company that I worked with, and I just decided that now is the time to do my own thing. And and um, 
at that point, my my I had a family connection who had a who have a business that um the first product that I built for them the first iteration of interpreter intelligence was for them so it was sort of like a stepping stone from consulting to then more product focus which I've been doing ever since. Before I ask you your next question, could you take thirty to sixty seconds to explain to the audience what it is that interpreter intelligence <laughs> is? Right. So interpreter intelligence is a platform for language companies to manage their business. So. Um, they say the translation space, language space is the biggest industry that nobody's ever heard about. So it's like a $32 billion industry. Um, and what it is, it's basically providing translations and interpretation for commercial organizations, for government organizations. So we work in a, in a specialized vertical for interpretation. So what that is, is, for example, if you have a court case and you're a non-English speaker, if you're a patient at a hospital and you're a non-English speaker, you're entitled to an interpreter by your bedside or an interpreter in the court actually do the translation from English to your to your native language and back and forth. So the platform itself manages the scheduling aspect of that. So if you're a court, if you're a hospital, you know, you need you need to, you know, have a have an appointment scheduled for you know this time next Thursday, you need a Spanish interpreter. And you need to make sure that it's the it's the uh, the interpreter is available, they're appropriately qualified, they haven't had any um, any reason not to attend that case. So for example, if they're related to the to the patient or yeah. if it's a court case, they're a family member, then they wouldn't be allowed to go there. We also handle all of the billing aspects. So you can invoice the customers from the platform. You can pay the interpreter from the platform. Yeah. And then in more, in more recent years, then we have, um, we've also branched into remote, remote interpreting where you can now provide video interpreters and over the phone interpreters rather than in-person interpreters uh, for hmm. these appointments. So with that in mind, you've said on a recent, I think it was recent, if I'm not correct, this year, uh, our, our startup network uh, call, there was four things that led to your success focusing on interpreter intelligence, um, or in your case, you changed the word success to surviving. One was market. There wasn't a lot of com- competition at, at that time. Two was customer development. Um you said that you went deep, listened, and understood. Three was exceptional customer service, and four was the arrival of competition. I want to focus on two of them. The second one being customer development. You said if we were more of a product-focused company, product-focused company in our early history, we probably wouldn't have gone as deep with these customers. Can you expand and explain that, please? Yeah, I think you know. So my my perspective is as a bootstrap company. So we haven't raised money to date. <clears throat> and when you're mm. bootstrapped, you have to make you know, you have to make it work somehow, right? It's either a failure is not an option. I guess is is what you might say. So with that in mind, then you know, you get your first customer. You know, it's not an option for you to just walk away from that when they get to a certain level. You have to be engaged with them deeply to get them to, to fill their needs. Because if there's a competing product out there which meets similar needs. That competing product more than likely has had funding. Perhaps it has a savvier sales system, a savvier sales cycle, um, and there's a good opportunity for them to come in and replace you as a business. So, when you're bootstrapped, you sort of have to, you know, you have to get much deeper with those customers, um, and to meet their needs. <clears throat> also, oftentimes there's an opportunity to to get additional revenue from those customers. So rather than just a pure license fee, um, you know, I've been fortunate in, in our development that, you know, we've worked with some bigger accounts, which have been open to paying for us to do some of these custom work for them. So as a smaller company, you might get engaged with the customer that the, the sales, the sale closes, you may end up doing six more months of additional work post sale with that customer. So not every company can do that. And it's not a great way to scale a business. So of course, if you do that by 10, you know, it's difficult to know how many, how you can get the resources to, to support the type of business. So, um, I think in terms of timing with the market, the competition wasn't around. 
we got some big name accounts. They put some money into the company in terms of they paid for us to build some customizations for them. We retained the IP and that became sort of a platform for the core product, if that makes sense. And, and whereas, how... if you could... Go on. whereas if you were to compare that with, for example, a funded or uh, a company which had outside funding, I think they don't have the time or necessarily the resources to focus on going that deep with customers. Mm. So they have to take a different strategy, which is more of, we need to build a broader product and then put in a sales system behind that to then to, to, to do customer acquisition. Yeah. And, and how did you then decide to add the fourth one, which being uh, arrival of competition as one of the four things that's led to the survival of your company? Yeah. I think, um, so I'm a pretty competitive person and I, I put that back to, um, you know, playing sports growing up and, you know, just mm. the peer group that I was in. And um, I think it's an invaluable uh, thing to have, you know, in your portfolio, in your, in your, in your bow. Um, but I would say it's, I, I may have been running like a lifestyle business for a number of years. You know, there wasn't a lot of competition in the space. We had happy customers and it wasn't until we saw this funded company arrive into the space and sort of hit the ground running pretty quickly that I was like, well, you know, you can either sit, 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 sit down and sort of watch this happen or else be more proactive about it. So that for me was a, was a, you know, a crossroad moment to say, okay, well, you know, I'm not going to sit, sit by and, and see how these guys get on. I'm going to be proactive. Started being a bit more aggressive then in terms of hiring additional people to help me. So m- namely in sales, you know, I, I was doing all the sales myself prior to that. Hired a sales guy, hired a, a, a director of operations to then help sort of streamline the business. Um, and that really then sort of set the agenda for the next couple of years through, through to today, which is basically, okay, let's be more focused about where we're going, what we want to get out of this in the end, um, and let's be aggressive about trying to grow the business. And you've done great to date. Uh, on your website, it's listed that you've got over 230,000 users. So kudos and congrats to you on that. And um, Blind Spot is one thing I want to focus on. There's a book to my right, and it's uh, the title I keep... Uh, not being able to read it, but it's it's along the lines of 13 blind spots that hold back an otherwise healthy business. Things like not focusing on lead generation and not nailing hiring or even onboarding. Um, it's said that the cost of a bad hire is five times their first year's annual salary. Um, I think that's really specifically on salespeople. My question to you is, is there a blind spot that you can think of that you faced in your early years as you bootstrap the company to where it is today that um, you could mention now so that people in the the same position as you were in the early days could potentially see that so they could not make that mistake. Yeah, I guess guess that uh, there's a better way to ask that question. Is there a blind spot that you think holds back companies in the early stage of when they're trying to bootstrap a company that if they were to nail that and get that right, they could avoid plentiful other road road bumps along the way yeah for sure yeah for sure i have a very relevant one um <clears throat> you know i think um as a bootstrap founder um you know one thing you don't focus on is your own personal development so in the last this year was the first year that i i actually uh, took the step to actually engage with the coach and um, to help me build you know well to help me identify what some of the challenges that i have and that may have been holding mm. back the business and i would say that if i was looking back I would say to, to find mentors as early as possible, you know, so someone who's been in business or perhaps in the industry or, you know, maybe there's someone who may invest in the company in the future, but to find people that you can, you know, share, share your struggles with, share your challenges with and get feedback from. Also, I would have, you know, I mean, in hindsight, I would have probably got engaged with the coach at a sooner opportunity, you know, and um, mm-hmm. 
because again, I think with the software space the way it is, there's a lot of people much like me who are software engineers, you know, perhaps they're good at talking to people as well who can build businesses, but there's a lot of those skill sets that you don't have in terms of, you know, managing people, building a team, potentially raising money that are massive blind spots. And, you know, they remain blind spots for me, but I now have a, a more of a focus in terms of where I can fill those blind spots and, and where, if I was to summarize where they would be, I think people is the most important thing. Like you say, like a bad hire, and we certainly have made some of them, um, can take up a lot of time and effort and emotional emotional distress at times as well. It's focusing on people. So setting, you know, what is the role? What is it that they need to do and managing to that? The second one then would be around the processes. So making sure that what you're building is for is built for the future. You know, mm -hmm. so putting the processes in place so that when you're not there, things can happen independent of you as a founder not being there. And then thirdly, um, focusing on the product, which I think we have done the product pretty well, you know, but I think the people, the people and the processes, it's really been an eye-opening experience for me to come to the realization as to how important they are. And, um, you know, you can build a small business, you can build a medium-sized business, not focus on them, but you can't build a big business, in my opinion, without focusing on the people and the processes that you're putting in place. What's your favorite aspect of leading a company? Um, I do like the sort of creative control, you know, it could be, it could be a criticism depending upon how you look at that. But um, in terms of where we're at at the moment, I do like um, being the boss and deciding, you know, what direction we're going in, leading the team. Um, I, I do love to see customers being happy as well, you know, so it's like the breadth of what I get exposed to on a daily basis is probably the most rewarding thing of it, uh, of what I'm doing. Um, I mean, of course, there's times where it's very stressful and uh, there's too many things going on. But taking a step back from it, I think uh, just, you know, having your, 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 your toes in each pool, you know, the sales side, the product side, the development side is really rewarding and very interesting. It's just at times it's a lot. Um, and that's where, you know, you need to hire the great, great people to come in and, and fill those holes. And then you then have a sort of a peer to peer type of relationship with those folks. If you focusing on your early days before we wrap this up. Uh, secondary school for UK Irish listeners, high school for US listeners, if you could add one mandatory subject to that period of their life, what would it be and why? Yeah, I think as a software, as a computer science person, it's an obvious answer to me. It's, you know, some aspect of computer programming um, should be integrated into the curriculum as standard. It's just so prevalent nowadays. And there's so much entrepreneurial opportunity for someone who can come out with some programming skills. You know, like with the with the abundance of cloud tools available, you can now you have to buy a server. You can now like do everything on demand online. <clears throat> so having kids be exposed to programming at an early age, I think is invaluable. We had exposure to word processing in our secondary school, which I think was exposure to a computer. It wasn't really exposure to like potentially what could be done with the computer, you know? So I think um, the challenge for any education system will be finding the teachers who can, who are comfortable with sort of teaching programming I think uh, is the big challenge, but there's so much potential. It's it's no different than reading or writing. Uh, you know, the reason why reading and writing has so much emphasis in the school system is because from that you can do anything. I think mm. computer programming is something similar to that. Like if you get the basics, really the sky's the limit. It's really up to your imagination in terms of what you can do with it or where you might go with it. Well, there's companies like Stripe that are doing some great work over here. They're partnering with University Limerick um, to run courses that those particular graduates would actually want to participate in i think they're in six or 12 week blocks and um, practical kind of workshop led courses rather than all theory based um and, and and a couple of others have come out since final question for you um 
so that we can get to watch this England and Germany match is I'd like you to, oh, your, your loved ones are all safe, but your house is burning down and you can only save one item. What one item would that be? I mean, my laptop, it's not, I don't even have to think about that question. I bring the laptop everywhere, which is another burden of a small company founder. Um, you know, there's really not a lot of downtime. Um, my life uh, outside of my family is my laptop. So um, oftentimes I wonder if I lost the laptop, you know, it'd probably be in a world of hurt. So um, yeah, because it contains everything around the business. Of course, everything is in the cloud, but it would just be a, a massive pain to um, have to replace, you know, that. So <clears throat> Yeah. Connor Power, I've had a great pleasure chatting and getting to know you a little more over the last 30, 35 minutes. I wish you nothing but continued success and kudos on your uh, journey today. 230,000 active users is, uh, is remarkably impressive. So thank you for being my guest. Thank you, Rain. Best of luck to you. I uh, love what you're doing with the podcast and uh, keep it up. Beautiful morning. Beautiful morning, baby.